Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Charlie, let's get something out of the way right up front. I know you love me. There's no reason that you need to stop me and say it. I feel it every day. Don't worry about it. Let's check that box and move right along, okay? Uh, If you're new to CBC, welcome. Hopefully you know that this is a grace-forward church, which means that we try to create and cultivate a culture where grace is kind of the currency with which we trade, except for three weeks a year. And we are in those weeks because what this is, it's, I, I take too much joy in this, but this is love packs like weeks, okay? And what that means is I get up here two Sundays a year and I get to bring up all of my one side of the family Catholic guilt and my lived in the South Baptist roots and say, you people need to be better, all right? And I mean that in love. We have over 11,000 things to gather. This feeds kids over Christmas that don't eat when they don't go to school. In a couple weeks, we're going to take a whole Sunday and just pack hundreds of these things so the kids have food. So, so when we say bring some food, we don't mean bring a six-pack of oranges. We mean bring all the oranges at Tom Thumb, all right? Uh, you can go, we're a long ways off, we just started last week, it's pretty typical, but you can see what we need, a couple notes, we need to stick strictly to what's set up there, and there's some different items this year than in years past. You can find this on our website next week, I'll do the same thing, and hopefully I can say, hey, that week, hey, go buy more peanut butter, we're good on jelly, but we'll see where we're at. But this is my call to you, to uh, go and, and buy all the things, because people need to see the love of Jesus, and oftentimes they see that when we meet felt needs because it's so hard sometimes to know that Jesus loves you if you're hungry and the church isn't doing anything about it. And so we're going to take a week and we're going to say, man, through God's generosity to us, we can show others his generosity to them. And we've been blessed. We live in Flower Mound, Texas, everybody. And so let's find some time this week to go to Costco and all the grocery stores, buy the things and bring it up here all week long and we'll put it where it needs to go. Sound good? At CBC, we also believe something very true. We believe that the work of the Spirit, we say it every week, is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And you're thinking to yourself, that sounded a lot like critique, Charlie. Sometimes your conviction needs a catalyst. How you doing? Um, kidding. We, we do want to acknowledge, before we get into the sermon, that our world is really critical, because I think we're prideful, and at the same time, we lack, uh, we, we, we lack an ability to see ourselves of value, And so out of that pride, uh, or the deficit of pride, we critique others. And this space is different. We use the scriptures so that the spirit might work in and through us. And as people see that, they see the goodness and beauty and overwhelming majesty of God. And so we just stop right here and acknowledge the space is different. That the spirit works inside of the followers of Jesus through the scripture. So we're just going to take a second and reset. Divorce ourselves from a critical culture and ask, how is the spirit going to speak to you this morning? Because he does because he's promised to, because we're opening the word of God that's alive and active and forming us together as we read it. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for these people that we can come together in the chaos of the world and just recognize that you're supposed to be the center of our world. It's a weekly practice and rhythm because every single day we're reminded that, that, that maybe we should be put at the center of the world and this space stops that. 
So Holy Spirit, today as we gather together, remind us of the centrality of God in our life. Holy Spirit, as we gather together and open the scriptures, speak to us. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to just take a couple seconds and pray that the Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning, that you might recognize the Lord's leading as, as we are being formed in the image of Christ together. And also I'll see you pray for me that I might do a good job to show us the goodness of God this morning as we walk through a few verses in Romans 13. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Hey, today we're going to be in Romans 13, 8 to 14, and we're going to talk about the power of similes. Everybody, you know what a simile is? It's comparing two unlike things using like or as, and all of you said, oh my goodness, let's just go eat some chili, right? Uh, the team this morning said, Charlie, bring your B minus game. We want the highlight to be the chili. And I said, okay, I'll do what I can. But no, we're going to talk about the power of simile because I think sometimes there are words that are difficult to define. There's one philosopher named uh, Ludwig Weinstein who said, I love this quote, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent. And, and what he's saying is that if we don't have language to describe something, we can't talk about that thing. Today we're going to talk about love. And love is one of the most used words in our culture. It's also one of the most abused words in our culture. It's one of the most used words in our culture. It's also one of the hardest to define. Because if I asked 10 people how they would see love, they'd give me 10 different answers. Every night I put my kid to bed. There's a book she likes to read. It's about two bunnies big nut brown hair and little nut brown hair. And, and the whole book is about the little nut brown hair saying how much he loves the big nut brown hair. And so he says, I love you this much. And he stretches out his arms. And then the jerk of an adult says, I love you even more. Watch how big I am. And the adult nut brown hair says, I love you this much and stretches out his arms. And the little one says, that's a lot. They go back and forth. I love you up to my toes. The big one, I love you up to my toes. We put similes to things, I love you like this, so that we can help find common ground to, ground to define terms that are a little more abstract or in some ways a little more conceptual. So what similes do is they give another level of concreteness to the conceptual. Some of the most powerful ones we know, I think one of the, the most known is the Forrest Gump one, life is like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get, right? that idea that life is unpredictable and how do we say that and make it concrete at the same time as being conceptual because it's this high level idea but here's what it really looks like I can grasp and lay hold of. Dead as a doornail, blind as a bat, dry as dust, good as gold, all similes that help us understand what we're meant when we use words to describe parts of life that are a little more conceptual. So today what Paul's going to do is use three different similes to talk about what love is. And when you talk about what love is, my, one of my favorite things to do is to see how kids define love because I think it's just heartwarming and funny. I found a couple this week that I loved. Chrissy, age six, says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> I do not love my daughter. Uh, Terry, age four, four-year-old, said, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Noelle, age seven, says, love is when you tell a guy you like a shirt, then he wears it every day. 
Carl, who's a five-year-old, said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) That guy's going to be a stud in high school, let me tell you something. Bobby, who's a seven-year-old, said, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. And then Justin, age 11, says, love is when you kiss a girl for the first time and then you know that you'll never be bored again because you can always just think about kissing her. (laughs) Just adorable. (laughs) Today, in the middle of this mixed-up community of Romans, the Hebrews and the, the, the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul has spent the last few chapters talking about the fact that we're charged to love one another, we're charged to love our government, we're charged to love our community, and what he's gonna do today at the end of that little section is say, and here's three ways that it should look like for you, three different similes that hopefully can put some, some concreteness on the conceptual. He's going to give them three ideas of how to love, not like Christmas or fries, but ways his community should love in ways that show the goodness of God. He puts words on an idea and makes the conceptual concrete. And so he starts like this, oh, no one anything except to love one another. He begins the first by saying love is very much, love is like a debt you owe. You might think that's really weird, but you gotta understand debt in the Old and New Testament. So first of all, what Paul's not saying is don't owe anybody anything without getting into detail. Sorry, Dave Ramsey. Uh, The Bible actually makes space for you to actually be in debt if it's done healthfully and in good ways. He uses this language time and time again in the book of Romans to say that we are indebted to share the gospel with others, to say that we're indebted to the Holy Spirit so that we might live a life worthy of the Spirit, that we live in a place of debts to God who is so good to us. And so he starts by saying, do you know what love is like? It's like a debt that you owe. And, and you got to understand, in the first century world, debt's kind of overtook uh, a lot of the world. One historian writes, and he said, the issue of indebtedness, loss of land, and heavy taxation loomed large in the urban elites. In Rome, Jerusalem, Tiberias, and elsewhere, the elites benefited greatly in the system. The significant social problem of Jesus' day was the growth of indebtedness and the swelling of the ranks of those displaced from the land because of debt. Chronic indebtedness ordinarily meant catastrophe for ancient peasantries. So what Paul is saying there is, oh, no one, nothing, but accept, love one another. He's framing the concept of debt that they knew and knew well, and he's saying you will have a new debt, and that is the debt of love to all people around you. And the Bible talks about love as a debt a couple times. I don't know if you guys remember the story of the guy that wouldn't forgive the debt. It's found in Matthew 18 and in Luke 7. And, and the story goes something like this. There's a man who owed a very large debt and he couldn't pay it. It was 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents essentially was more than you could pay in several different lifetimes. Actually, if you go to the Greek, 10,000 was the largest numerical which, which they had in the Greek, and the talents was the largest number of money that they ever counted. And so he's saying that you take the most thing you could ever think about numerically, and that's your debt to somebody else. And this guy says, go away, you don't owe it to me anymore. And then if you know the story, he goes to somebody near him who owed about 100 denarii, a couple months wages, and he wouldn't forgive it. And what the case is making there in that story is that forgiven people are forgiving people. That if you understand what Jesus did for you, what Jesus did for me, we understand that the debt we owe is way way greater than anything we should pay. And what he's doing there is he's transferring that principle onto the other people in the lives of the church. What he's saying there is that you're going to love like a debt that you can never, ever, ever get out of. That's how we love. 
like an unending debt that you're never gonna be able to pay off. I love what Church Father Origen says. He says, the debt of charity is permanent and we are never quit of it for we must pay it daily and yet always owe it. We, we can pay our taxes and be done. We can give respect and honor to one another and have no further obligation, but we can never say as followers of Jesus, we can never say, we can never say that I've done all the loving that I need to do. Love is a permanent obligation, a debt impossible to discharge for the followers of Jesus. The first thing we start with when we talk about love, just to put it in a context, to make the, con, uh, the concept a little more concrete, is we start by saying love is a debt we owe to one another that we will never pay off. That's how we should see it. There's no end of it. There's no saying, I've done all that I can do and I can do no more. It's constantly loving one another because that's how we've been loved by God. I love what one writer said about debt, or love, excuse me. He said, love is a will in search of an object. Love is a will in search of an object. And why I like that is because I think that we see that in the Godhead and the creation narrative. One of my favorite things to think about is what was Jesus called before Jesus was a man? Because his parents gave him the name. So what was Jesus known as in the creation, prior to creation, before the incarnation? What was Jesus known as? And the answer is he's known as the perpetual son. So, so literally how we define the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is around this idea of this overflowing love, this love that is a will in search of an object and found it in the Father and the Son. And then we use that language to talk about creation. So creation happened when the immaculate and resplendent and overwhelming love of God overflowed on the creation of canvas and then we came to be because God's love could not be contained. And then when we live in the ways of Jesus, we share that goodness and that love to the rest of creation. That was the thought at the beginning. So he makes this case that all the love that he talked about with government and with people and with persecution, all of that love is like a debt that you always owe and never get out of. And here's the difference between it being burdensome and lovely. If you know that you've been forgiven, then it's not burdensome to give love out. It's just beautiful. And so when we think of love, He's saying, think of it like something you owe to somebody else. Because so often, we're good at saying that we don't owe somebody love if it's not given to us first. But Paul makes no space for that argument. He's saying your love will seep out of everything you do and find a place to grow. I, uh, I recently have done some home repairs and I, the other day, was building a, a, a base for a shed I'm going to build. And I went to turn the hose off, and it didn't turn off. And I said, that's not good. And if you know anything about me, it's that I feel like a huge poser when I walk into any home department, like Home Depot or Lowe's. I almost call it a home department store. That should tell you all you need to know. Uh, But I try, you know, like I try. And so a buddy who, like, builds houses was with me, and I said, hey, man, we can't turn this off. He said, nope. I said, what does that mean? He said, it means it's broken. <laughs> I said, okay, how do we fix it? He said, well, you just go buy a spigot from Lowe's and, 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 and put it right in. I said, that's it? You just put it right in? He said, sure, let's turn your water off. Well, we did. We went to Lowe's and we bought a spigot and we realized that because my house was built by, uh, like, I don't know what safety inspector, but he was a good one. They, they bricked in the spigot to the house. Mm-hmm. So we had to get a chisel and a drill and break my house. At one point, my wife walked out and said, what are you guys doing? I said, I don't know. <laughs> but we think it's a good idea to break the house. <laughs> and so then my buddy, who was doing all the work that I'm going to take all the credit for in the future, uh, he, 
he got the spigot out. He had to remove a couple bricks. So there's a hole in my house. And I said, how are we going to fill this hole? And there is this stuff that he bought at one of the home department stores that we went to. Uh, and it's a giant, it's a giant gap filler. It's called Great Stuff Big Gap Filler. They did not spend money on name or branding, okay? I don't know if you guys have used this before, but it's like this foam stuff that you squirt in a hole and then it expands. It's amazing. So we put it in this hole and we got it to where it was kind of like in there a little bit. I came back 30 minutes later and I could no longer see my spigot because it had gone out so much and expanded. Look, I tell you that story for a couple reasons. One, you're thinking, I don't work on my house, so this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, but now you know that I do. So we all win. Uh, And then two, if you're the kind of person that does, I think it's important. It's a good visual representation of what the love, the debtedness, the will that we have to find an object that is called love that we should have when we follow Jesus. That our love, because we owe it to others, will find any kind of crack it can to overflow into the world because that's how God loved us. And that's what he called us to. So, so, so Paul is making a case that the way we love is with this never-ending flow of goodwill towards others because we owe people a debt, and that debt is love that you can never get out of, no matter how much you love before or no matter how much they deserve it. And then he goes on to define who that's for. He says, for the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. If there's any other commandment, they're summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. So the first thing he says is that love is like a a debt that you owe. And the second thing he says is love like you love yourself. And that's a whole sermon series, by the way. But namely to say, I think our culture is filled, filled, filled with self-love. And it's not what the Bible says is good. The word that's most used in the New Testament for love, agape, is by definition in nature a selfless love which cannot be turned on the self. And it's partly because, according to the scripture, self-love is the essence of sin. That's why our definition of discipleship at Crossroads begins with to know yourself, not to know that you're great because you never come to the realization that God is what you need if you don't realize that you're not what you need. It's the idea that the beginning of finding the goodness of God is recognizing it's not in you. And we have a culture that says if you just focus on yourself a little more, if you just dive into what makes you happy a little more, then you will, in essence, find a better version of you and you'll be happier. The problem is it's not true. In his book on soul care, John Ortberg cites a study. So the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, came out with a study that indicates that in the 20th century, people who lived in each generation were three times more likely to experience depression than folks in the generation before them. Despite the rise in mental health professions and people becoming increasingly vulnerable to, people are becoming increasingly more vulnerable to depression. One psychologist with no religious background says that he has a theory and it's because we've replaced church, faith, and community with a tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of meaning. That's the self. We're all about the self and we revolve our lives around the self. We've never had more mediums for expression and we've never been more unhappy because we've put ourselves at the middle of something God was supposed to inhabit. Self-expression isn't the solution, the solution to our problem. The placement of self outside the center of our being is the problem that we don't recognize. And so when Paul says love, so you're gonna love like this, like a debt that's gonna be owed, you're gonna love like you love yourself, but not in a way that we see in our culture. You're gonna love yourself like God sees you and values you, and you're gonna focus on others like our culture says you should focus on you. I love what Ortberg says. 
He says, the more we focus on ourselves, the more we neglect our souls. Self is a standalone do-it-yourself unit where the soul reminds us we're not made for ourselves. And so when we love others like we love ourselves, Jesus has a parable about this again. He talks about uh, the Good Samaritan. If you know the setup of that parable, it's really important. The Pharisees are gathered around and they said, how are we supposed to love? How many times are we supposed to love? They're asking Jesus to define love. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes the Old Testament. And they say, who's my neighbor? And he says, let me tell you a story. There's a dude walking down the street. He was an Israelite. There's a dude walking down the street. Actually, three Israelites that were in the priestly uh, uh, families. And they come up on this Samaritan who got attacked and mauled and he's beaten and bloodied and they walk right by. But one man walks by and he doesn't. And what you got to know about that story that's really profound is he's saying that this Samaritan that found this Jewish guy that got beat up cared for him. Samaritan and the Jews hated each other, hated each other. In Jesus' day, Israelites would walk around the whole country of Samaria because they thought they were like half-breeds, just to not step foot in their land. This Israelite's beat up, and the Samaritan stops. And so what Jesus does in that moment is he says, who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the person that might not look like you, that might actually look opposite of you, that might not share your political beliefs, that might not share your spiritual beliefs, that might not share a common heritage. Who you love, who your neighbor is, is that person that maybe you don't think is your neighbor in the first place. What he gets to in that story is he pushes back against the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus to say, your neighbor are Jews and nobody else. And that's the context of this book is the Romans didn't want to love anybody but the Romans, and the Jews didn't want to love anybody but the Jews. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how my kingdom works. I wish I could say that we were really good at this as a church. Like, not this one in general, but Big C. I wish I could say we were known for loving others that didn't look like us, but we're not. I think when you look at how churches form and function, when you look at the Big C church overall, we're really good at loving people that believe like us and look like us and share our same view of complementarity or egalitarianism or our same view of infallibility of scripture or sexuality. But if you vary at all or if you go a little bit away from what we believe is core doctrine or even not core doctrine, we're really quick to throw you to the wolves because you're no longer one of us. I can give you example after example after example of pastors that I read about that I know that struggled in their faith and they, didn't, they were not met with love, they were met with abandonment. So, so he's defining love as love your neighbor and he defines neighbor as someone who might not look like you, who probably doesn't look like you. That's why he continues on to say that this love that we have is a fulfillment of the law because the Jewish people used the law as a battering ram for why not to love others because they weren't like them and they didn't live like them and they didn't deserve the love of God. In the whole book of Romans, Paul says this thing that you think is your privilege is not your privilege. It is your catalyst to love others like God has loved you. You've missed the point. He says to this Jewish audience that you need to love because the law requires you to. It's not the reason why you don't love others. This is the reason why you do. So Everything you read in your Old Testament, all the laws, all the 600 and change of the laws, the ones you understand and the ones you don't understand, all of those laws, do you know why they were there? They were an expression of love for people. So if you're trying to read in Leviticus and you get three chapters in and you realize it's not a good day for that, uh, remember that if there's a law you don't understand, start with this. God said this is an expression of love. How? Because it is. Because all the love is wrapped up in this idea you should love one another. And so he's talking about the difference between love and law, and he says that you're going to love others like you love yourself. And for a Jewish audience, looking at a Roman dude in the face, that was 
profound. I think this is one is one that we know and say all the time and put on shirts and coffee mugs, but we might not live out like we should. And so Paul says, here are my similes. You're going to love like you owe a debt. You're going to love like you love yourself. And then finally he ends. And do this because we know the time that it's already the hour for us to awake from sleep for our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers. So the third thing is you're, you're loving like you're running out of time. There are different studies I've quoted before, but I, we don't feel the weight of evangelism anymore. And by that, I just mean we don't talk about Jesus to people who don't love Jesus anymore. We either feel like, and there's numbers to back this up, we either feel like it's offensive, abrasive, or not uh, important. When Paul talks about love, he, he talks about the idea that it's a debt we owe, it's how we should love others, is like we love ourselves, and then finally, we love others like there's not enough time to do it. We have, we have lost our catalyst for action, I think, in the church that they didn't have the ability to do in the first century church. There's two words for time in the Greek when it says we've known the time. There's chronos and kairos. Chronos is chronological. It's one, two, three, four, five. That's not the one used here. It's kairos, which essentially means there's an existential, there's an existential moment of opportunity and decision. In 1985, a group of black South African theologians wrote a response to the crackdowns of the apartheid government, and they titled it the Kairos Document. And it began, the time has come, the moment of truth has arrived. And the document was pervaded with a strong sense that time was ripe for change, and the fate of South Africa balanced on a knife's edge, and small actions might have the power to change the path of history. His view of time is one that now is the time for the gospel to go forward, that people might see the love of Jesus, because there's not enough time for everybody. We've lost a sense of urgency. So he says, wake up from your sleep. And here's what we know culturally, that urgency sells. That's why the McRib is always a limited time offering. You know that? At all times, the McRib is always a limited time offering because they're hoping you'll hear that, you'll get in your car, you'll drive to McDonald's, you'll make some bad decisions, everybody, okay? We know that uh, urgency sells. There's literally a scarce, there's a marketing strategy called scarcity marketing strategies. It came out of uh, a study in 1975 where two guys got together and they had two jars of cookies. And one was full with 10 and one was full with two. They were the same cookies and they asked people to rate them. And overwhelmingly, the jar with two got rated as higher quality without any other indicator because there's less of them. So we got to act right now. That's what Amazon Prime Day is all about. Not your good. I'm sorry to break that bubble to you right now, you know? It's that we might find urgency that you have to buy right now or do right now or be right now. My fear is that when we think of love, it's a complacent love and not an urgent love. My fear is that we've missed Paul's call to love urgently because there's not enough time to love people in a way that they see the complete love of Jesus. Thomas Edison said this about complacency. We shall have no better conditions in the future if we're satisfied with all those which we have at the present. Love's urgent in a way that maybe we overlook, and complacency is the place where progress stops. I love what A.W. Tozer said about complacency in the spiritual life. He said, complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is the stagnant soul. So he's asking them to see love through the lens, not only of their debt and not only of how they love each other, but do it now. Don't wait until tomorrow because it's urgent. It says in verse 12, the night is advanced towards dawn, the day is near. 
So then we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. So what Paul's going to do here is talk about this theology of already but not yet. It's not that you're more saved today than you were yesterday. It's that we're more near towards God coming back, towards an actualized reality of sanctification, towards us fully being like Jesus, which we're promised on the other side of this life. He's saying that today we're not more saved than yesterday. That's a one-time thing that Jesus does for followers of Jesus. But what it is, is hopefully as we live out the ways of Jesus, we see more of God in our world today than we did yesterday, already but not yet. My favorite example of the kingdom of God is teenagers because more and more as they grow, you'll see glimpses of mature people and then wait a couple minutes and that's the same too for 20-year-olds. I'm not picking on teenagers. I am picking on teenagers, I'm <laughs> sorry. But, but it's this idea that, that as they grow more and more, you see what they're gonna be like as contributing adults and it's a beautiful thing and you can't wait for that moment to get here and it's coming. And so he puts this conversation of love in the context of the kingdom of God that's growing of the kingdom of God that says Jesus is coming back, of the kingdom of God that's built on this idea that God started something, that, that Jesus started something and he's not done with it yet. Then he <clears throat> ends by saying, let us not live decently as the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness or sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord or jealousy. Most people write that he was writing this from Corinth and they had a problem with those specific actions, but more importantly, what you need to know about why those are in there is all those practices are failure of love. All those six practices revolve around your pleasure, not others, uh, not us serving others. All those practices are about you and not anybody else. So he says, stay away from these things. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. And this is what fights love in us all the time is our flesh. Eugene Peterson said, the flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. Dershevsky says, God and the devil are fighting and, uh, fighting and there's a battlefield over the heart of man. It's this idea that right here, right now, the way of love is fighting on one side and the way of selfishness is fighting on the other. And he's saying, do you know what love is like? This conceptual word that's hard to define and to define differently over time from seven-year-olds to 70-year-olds. you know what love is like? Love is like a debt that you owe that you're never going to get out from under in a beautiful way. It looks like how you treat yourself if you really love yourself. And it also is urgent because time is running out. So this is what it looks like to love. And you know what fights that? Your desire to not do any of that. That's a bombshell that we needed this morning, right? <laughs> what fights that is your flesh. This constant battle to not love and not show people the, the goodness of God because I'm tired because you went too far, because I got better things to do. And so he's reminding them in this moment, and this is the messiness of community, you know? No matter how many times I know I should love my wife, I need to be reminded what that looks like. No matter how many times we take the five love languages test, and she always scores off the charts on physical touch, and I still score negative numbers, I need to be reminded to hug my wife. So what Paul is doing, even though he just laid out chapters worth of why you should love others, he's saying this is where the conceptual meets the concrete. This is the words we put around this concept. This is what the philosopher talked about when he said, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent. This is what love looks like. And so maybe, maybe today, as we've talked about this, none of these things were new, and that's fantastic. You need to hear it anyway. Maybe it's going to help us rethink about love in a different way that catapults us to love more. That's a catalyst for action. That's what the scripture does. 
But he says, love is a debt that you owe to the person next to you, whether they look like you or not. It's your duty to love your neighbor like yourself and don't wait any longer because time is running out. And so today, I would just ask you to do a couple things. One, these are Paul's three similes. What's yours of love? <laughs> if I said love is like, how, how, how do you fill in that blank? And I'd ask three questions. One, if, if love is like filling the cracks, if it's a will finding an object, what is your object? Find one this week. Find one. Find 10. Be a superstar, right? Find one. Two, two I'd ask, how are we doing in loving others versus loving ourselves? Where is most of your time and your energy and your money spent and your concerns spent? This is not to put down you. This is simply to say that I think you find the best version of you and we serve one another. That's biblical. The whole like find your life, lose your life bit. Jesus knew what he was talking about. And then three, do we love urgently? Like right here, right now. Do we miss opportunity because we're tired? I do sometimes. Do we miss opportunity because we're complacent? Do you know that people need to see the love of Jesus right now? And if you loved like Jesus did the rest of your life, they wouldn't get a full enough picture. So our love is in every way, it's endless and it's selfless and it's urgent. Because that's how Jesus loved us. It's all that we do stems from this idea of how we're loved by Jesus. And sometimes we just need some days where we put some similes to something so that we see something in a different light. So today is not new or profound. Maybe today you take away one of the things the kids said at the beginning, but today is a day where we talk about the value and the power of love in the community of God. With people that are different than us, with people that are the same as us, with people that desperately need to know right here, right now, how much God loves them. Because our community is brought together by how much we're loved by Jesus and nothing else. Because we live, we live from the love of Jesus, not for it. So might we be a people that press into the tangible ways we make the conceptual concrete so that we might love well. Let me pray. I'm thankful today how much you love us. I'm thankful that you call us into action. I'm, I'm thankful that love is more than just a concept, but it's a concrete way of living that show people the goodness of God. I'm thankful thankful that we're called to do it urgently and we're called to do it selflessly and we're called to do it forever because then people see how much God loves them so, so Holy Spirit give us opportunity give us opportunity to love well give us a heart for others and give us an urgency that comes straight from the Spirit because now is the time pray these things in the name of Jesus